Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. Hi, I'm Mujola Mali. And I'm Blair Bigham. This is a CMAJ podcast. So, Jola, we've had sickle cell disease um, on our minds probably since we started the podcast. But a recent paper in the spring uh, sort of re-sparked this conversation amongst us. Uh, and it's a case of a sickle cell patient who actually got extremely sick. They had sickle cell SC, so a single allele gene, and ended up in the ICU with E. coli bacteremia, with renal failure, uh, with um, quite a significant amount of red blood cell transfusions. They got extremely sick. And uh, CMAJ has talked about sickle cell a couple of times in the last few years um, from sort of the basics of how to manage sickle cell crisis and how to determine if there is a more dangerous vasoocclusive crisis going on to having some conversations with patients over the years about how how uh, many times they don't receive uh, a high standard of care. And often there are thoughts that there's a lot of bias from providers uh, involved in this around drug-seeking behavior and other more systemic uh, racism problems that prevent uh, appropriate care from being given. Uh, in the pediatric population, it's much different, uh, mainly because, you know, they're treated as sick kids and or another children's hospital, and they are less viewed as drug-seeking because they have a, a caregiver or a parent who is accompanying them. Whereas with adults, it's much, it's much, it's a different kettle of fish. And having uh, family members and having close friends who have sickle cell as adults, it really impacts, you know, where they can live uh, because they want to live near a hospital that they know is going to take care of them when they're in crises and not turn them away, that they have to start going to different Different hospitals to try and get care. So we had this story meeting and one of our senior editors brought up this example of a well-known emergency physician who people go to specifically when they're on shift for good sickle cell care. And it turns out that he's not the only one. There's a number of centers that are known for being particularly adept at providing really good care to people having a sickle cell crisis. And we found one of those experts and we're going to speak to Dr. Jennifer Bryant shortly. After that, we'll be talking to a patient with sickle cell disease who has had, well, some good interactions, but also some not-so-good interactions with Ontario's healthcare system. Dr. Jennifer Bryan is a founding member of the UHN Emergency Department Sickle Cell Working Group and an emergency physician at UHN. She's also the co-chair of the 2022 Sickle Cell Summit, being organized by the Sickle Cell Awareness Group in Ontario. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Blair. Hi, Majola. Thanks for having me. It's nice to go Emerge Doc to Emerge Doc on the podcast today. Jola and I mentioned off the top that people with sickle cell disease report that their treatment as children in pediatric centers is very different from the treatment they experience as adults. Does that resonate with you? It does. It does. Yeah. So what do your patients tell you about that experience of turning 18? As some people say, they get kicked out of sick kids. What do they tell you about what that experience is like when they have a sickle cell crisis? 
So what I've heard patients talk about is that switch in needing to advocate for themselves as patients and how that's a quite different experience from going in with caregivers, with parents. And so when patients are coming in as adults, um, now they're more often dealing one-on-one with their healthcare providers. They're encountering the realities of adult emergency medicine where we are very aware of issues around the opioid crisis. And, and that certainly can impact people's care. I've heard from adults that the issues that they've encountered in terms of stigma, lack of understanding about sickle cell, and facing anti-Black racism is much more pronounced in adulthood than when they were children. And so it goes beyond just having to now sort of be solo and advocating for yourself. Despite being alone, it's more that the need for advocacy is even greater because is it, do you think it's just that there's a lesser understanding of sickle cell in the community or in, in adult quote unquote hospitals? Or does this really get down to the, the more nastier topic of racism and anti-Black tendencies in medicine and this fear that emergency doctors have of drug-seeking behavior? I think it's all mixed in together, right? So for our adults who are living with sickle cell, when they come to the emergency department, um, and there's a number of different complications related to sickle cell that can bring people to an emergency department, but most common would be vaso-occlusive episodes. And mm-hmm. so these are incredibly painful episodes that people describe as being worse than having a broken bone, worse than labor pains. But these episodes are often and invisible. So the person is telling you, I'm having 12 out of 10 pain, but their vital signs may well be normal. There's nothing to find on physical exams. So it's an invisible cause of excruciating pain. And so that certainly is a complicating factor, is a lack of education around sickle cell and about the the presentation of pain in people who have lived with this disease and had symptoms often since infancy. That Mm -hmm. presentation of pain is quite different than someone who's experiencing pain for the first time, maybe with renal colic, right? And by that, do you mean people are more stoic? They don't show the pain as as much as they experience it? Is that sort of what you're... I just want to cut right to it because I think a lot of emergency doctors are probably sitting there thinking, well, you know, there is no test. There's no confirmatory way for me to know what's going on here. So, so how can we better attend to that suffering and not be as suspicious of it? So I would say, let's keep it simple, right? It doesn't have to be complicated. If someone tells you they're in pain, they're in pain, right? One of the things that I've seen happen with people who are living with sickle cell is the coping strategies that they've developed over a lifetime of living with pain get misinterpreted as signs Mm. that they're not actually in pain. And that's one of the things that we need to just, we need to get past. Give me an example of that. So for example, sometimes people will say, oh, this person is eating a sandwich. They look like they're doing okay. Uh. Um, They're talking on their phone. They're talking with friends. 
And instead of these being signs that somebody's feeling better, these can actually be very important strategies for people to manage their own pain. And so if I see somebody who is asking for food in the emergency department or is trying to get a plug for their phone, that's not a sign for me that they're feeling better and we need to cut back on the pain medication. That's just yet another indication that I need to ask them how they're doing and say, how is your pain right now, right? Is it better? Is it worse? Are we heading in the right direction? This is all very enlightening for me. This is, I think, super helpful. Can you tell me a little bit more about other things emergency physicians can recognize or see in these patients that might reassure them that additional opioids, for example, are in fact the right thing to do? So one thing we can do and we do so often in emergency medicine is look to the literature. What is, yeah, is there evidence around this? Yes, yeah. So there are a pair of papers. They're a little older now, both published in the States, um, where most of the research on sickle cell is getting published. And they're fascinating because one looked at how suspicious emergency physicians were that people with sickle cell were misusing their opioids. And emergency physicians thought that the rate was quite high, up to 20% right? Quite high. When we look at the Canadian data around the proportion of folks that are prescribed opioids and how many are using them for reasons other than pain management, that number is somewhere between 9 and 10%. Now, in the States, the other paper that I think is particularly interesting is the one that looks at what is the proportion of folks living with sickle cell that were using their opioids for reasons other than pain control. And that number is actually very low. So it was down around 2%. Wow. Yeah. So actually so we, less than what you would so expect. So closer to 10% in the general population and 2% in the sickle cell population. So is it fair to say that this concern around promoting addiction or dependence by offering narcotic therapy in patients having sickle cell crisis is it's a false, it's sort of like a myth out there? It's just, we can plainly say there's evidence that just is not the case. Absolutely. So, you know, no doubt. There is an opioid epidemic, right? We see that every single shift in the emergency department, right? But the thing to remember, and this was stated really clearly by one of my colleagues who is an expert in addiction medicine, Dr. Hassan Sheikh, the opioid epidemic is not being driven by sickle cell. Right, right. So you're so passionate about this and you're such a clear communicator and you know the literature so well. How did you get focused on sickle cell treatment? Was that from your work as an emergency physician? So it was through my work as an emergency physician and as an educator. So I credit a student at that time, now quite a few years ago, who is now a resident in emergency medicine, Dr. Sarah Alavian, who was very interested in sickle cell and prompted me to ask some very difficult questions. And after a discussion with her about her interest in sickle cell, I had a very frank conversation with a patient in the emergency department. And this was a young man who had complications related to sickle cell since a young age, not an uncommon story. And I asked him what it was like for him coming into the emergency department. 
And one of the first things he told me was about having to present himself in a certain way in order to get the support of Mm. emergency department providers. How so? And so he talked about as a young black man that he felt he wouldn't be taken seriously if he came to the emergency department dressed as he would normally dress. He said, I can't come in here in a hoodie asking for morphine if I want to be taken seriously. Oh, wow. And that was heartbreaking for me to think that someone would feel like they had to be dressed up or to present themselves in a certain way in order for us to care about them. Do you think that if you asked patients that they probably feel as if racism and bias plays a bigger part in not receiving adequate care? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So while sickle cell disease can affect people of all races in Canada, most of those who are affected are Black. And especially most of those in the GTA are Black. And so they're dealing with not only complications of a life-limiting disease that are often invisible to others in the midst of an opioid crisis where the treatment is often opioid analgesia, but they are also dealing with anti-Black racism and stigma. And so while we would like to think that we're immune to anti-Black racism in healthcare, we don't leave those biases at the door when we go to work. Mm -hmm. And our patients do notice and are aware and are concerned about not being treated the same as others in the emergency department. And Jennifer, there are actual targets. There are recommendations about how we should do this. Go into educator mode for me and give me the 101. What does every ER doc need to know to incorporate into their practice tomorrow to sort of meet this Ontario standard? So the Ontario Clinical Handbook from 2017 is an excellent resource. And I would suggest that all emergency physicians take a minute, just have a little flip through and see what are we supposed to be doing for patients living with sickle cell who come for our help in the emergency department. One of the key recommendations there is a target for time to analgesia. And that target is 30 minutes from triage. Wow. I do not meet that standard. (laughs) It's, It's ambitious. It is aspirational. But I believe that it is doable. And in order to reach that target, there are a number of different things that need to happen in our departments. First off, this needs to be a team effort. And that's been the most important part of our emergency department working group on sickle cell has been that we involve physicians and nurses and social workers and our red blood cell disorders clinic. And most importantly, our patients and community advocates. Um, And working together, we're trying to reach that goal, reach that target. When we look back at the data to see, okay, how long is it taking for people to get analgesia? And what are the things that promote faster access to pain medications? There were a couple of things that really stood out. And so those are ones that we have been emphasizing in our emergency department to try to advance care. So one was the 
patients getting pain medications before they would have normally been seen by a physician. And so oh. what what's happening there is those are our nurse advocates. So those are our nurses at triage who are identifying patients who need pain medication quickly, who are able to then approach the eMERGE docs and say, yep, I know we've got like four or five hour wait times right now, but can we get pain medication started for this person? Gotcha. Very cool. Um, the other thing that makes a big difference, and that is something that's possible for every emergency department, is having a standard approach to care. And for our department, that's in the form of an order set. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was developed a number of years back in cooperation between the emergency department and our hematology team and pharmacists. We've revised that just over a year ago now with direct input from patients, from community advocates, from many members of the emergency department team and other healthcare providers throughout the hospital. And so that order set includes not only that 30-minute time target and some specific recommendations for pain medications, but also advice on how to spot other complications of sickle cell and an explicit statement around supporting some of those coping strategies Hmm. that we were talking about. So the importance of having access to food and to water and, you know, to not mistake someone being on their phone or trying to distract themselves as a sign that they're doing okay, but emphasizing you need to ask about pain. So if I were your resident and we were doing a simulation, what would the top three things that you would want me to do be in order to pass that simulation? And what narcotic, what dose of narcotic, how frequently, like, you know, I'm thinking like ABCs here, right? Like, boom, like what exactly would you want your resident to do where you would go, you nailed that care? So the first thing I would want the resident to do is to prioritize seeing the patient right? Even if it's a quick chat and you're going to go back and do your full physical exam later, right? But that initial, let's just see what's going on right now is incredibly important. And I would want to see the resident recognize the expertise that the patient has. And so most of the patients that I see in the emergency department, this is not their first time coming to the emergency department and they know their bodies well. And so my first question is, how can I help? What do you need from us tonight, right? Right, because they're going to know what works for them, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now we have specific recommendations on starting doses for opioids, depending on if the person has opioids regularly at home. So if they're more familiar with opioids or if they're opioid naive. But most of the time, what I'm starting the patients on is what they're asking for because they know what's worked for them before. The other thing that I would say is to be sure to pair the opioids with non-opioid analgesia. It works very synergistically to also have acetaminophen, to also have ibuprofen or Mm ketorolac. They can work very well together. So not forgetting those other options as well. So on our hospital formulary, we have a sublingual fentanyl. And the only indication is for people living with sickle cell. So it's an option if we're having difficulty getting good IV access, which unfortunately is not uncommon for folks that have had multiple episodes and many emergency department visits. That was a masterclass in sickle cell crisis. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
Dr. Jennifer Bryan is a founding member of the UHN Emergency Department Sickle Cell Working Group and an ER physician at UHN. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. Lance Archer is a sickle cell patient as well as an advocate for the Sickle Cell Awareness Group of Ontario. Thanks for joining us today, Lance. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Dr. Bryan just talked to us about the ideal treatment for cases of sickle cell, which is pain relief within 30 minutes of coming into the door, comforts like Mm -hmm. a phone charger, food, hot water bottle, blankets. Your experience here, how close does that match with yours? I'd say it's pretty close. That's my experience in general. Recently, I've noticed that there has been a shorter wait time for me in seeing a physician typically within 30 minutes upon arrival at the ER, so it's good. I'm usually uh, met with a warm blanket. I'm usually given fluids almost immediately, so it's quite similar. Can you tell me a little bit about what, like, I know it's hard to describe what the pain during a crisis is, but like Mm -hmm. on average, how often would you say that you have crises? On average, I would say I would experience varying degrees of crises. There are some that I'm able to successfully manage at home, and then there are those that require hospitalization. The ones that require hospital hospitalization are excruciating pain. This is pain that is not responding well to my medication regime here at home. It feels like bone pain. It's it's so intense that I'm unable to move that area of my body. For example, mm. if it's in my shoulder, I cannot lift the arm. If it's in my hip, I cannot walk. And it, it feels so distressing, so uncomfortable that it clouds my judgment. I'm not able to think clearly. I'm not able to process things effectively. I'm, I'm just consumed by the pain. It, it feels like... There is, like, I get the image of a shark just gnawing on the bone. That's what it feels like when it's extremely severe. Mm -hmm. And that's when I I know that I need to be seen within the hospital setting. And how often do you think that that happens like that? Yeah, so my last hospitalization was in March of this year. Um, I, I do take a medication prescribed to, to reduce the frequency of uh, pain crises. So that has been very helpful for me. Um, so since being on this medication, I know that my, my hospitalization has reduced. I, I, I think in March, that was a first in six years. Oh, good. That okay. I was hospitalized, yeah. Okay. Can you, if it's not too hard for you, can you tell me what your mm-hmm. worst experience with um, a crisis has been in the emergency department? Yeah, so my 
I would say this is by far the worst experience would have been a significant delay in being assessed. I believe that it took several hours, maybe a minimum of two and a half hours before I was ever seen. And I, I felt as if I was neglected because I was placed in what appeared to have been a supply closet. Oh, and goodness. medical staff, they were coming in and out and I was reaching out for some sort of support for pain relief and being ignored. And that experience has not left me. That was in 2015, I believe. I'd say that, that's the worst. That sounds very. That sounds very traumatic to just mm-hmm. to be ignored when you're screaming out that you're you're uncomfortable. You're you know you're in pain. Yeah, definitely. I remember just having a conversation with a gentleman. I'm not sure what his position was at the, the, within the hospital, and um, I was saying, imagine I'm here, desperate for some relief. And people are coming in and out and ignoring me. I wasn't boisterous. I wasn't loud. I wasn't screaming. I know that each time someone came in, I was asking if someone could please provide me with some sort of pain relief, but to no avail. I'm so sorry that that was your experience. That sounds really Mm -hmm. horrible. Mm -hmm. So would you say that treatment varies from hospital to hospital? I'd say so. I remember um, being at least two hours away from home once and I I had a crisis while visiting my uncle and I was taken to the hospital within his community and that experience too stands out as one of the worst I've had where it seemed as if people were not aware of treating sickle cell disease. They were Mm -hmm. more interested in what am I doing so far from where I live and... um, that that experience did suggest to me that it varies, that many persons are not aware of the treatment protocol for sickle cell disease. There was another time I was hospitalized, and there, too, I had a significant delay in being assessed. So it, it really does seem like there are varying degrees of uh, response to sickle cell crises in hospitals here in Ontario. And do you think that uh, other people in the community who have sickle cell, do they kind of know which hospitals that's good at responding and which hospitals to be avoided? Mm-hmm. I think that we we currently have some hospitals we consider to be centers of excellent care in the way that they approach managing a crisis. And within the community, we encourage patients with sickle cell disease to visit these sites. Unfortunately, some of these sites are really far from where they live, but some patients sound to me that they are willing to take that journey because they know that they have a better chance of um, receiving optimal care. I imagine people go to pretty far lengths to get to their preferred hospital. Many of my friends are within the city of Hamilton, and so we we know that this is the go-to hospital because we have our hematologists there. We have, um, you know, physicians. We know that the, the staff are well-versed on how to manage it. But within the community, I've heard that an individual once had to travel an hour to get to a center of excellence. Well, that's... So that's a lot to do when you're in like excruciating mm-hmm. pain and you can't move. I whatever agree. area is actually uh, being affected. Yeah, and, and imagine and, and how many hospitals you're bypassing. I mean, 
within an hour right. drive of anywhere in the Golden Horseshoe, you're yeah. you're driving by at least three or four hospitals. Yeah, yeah. I and I, I suspect when you are really being racked with pain, when you feel as if you are about to die, you are desperate for optimal care. And and it pushes you to get that. It's so unfortunate. It's so unfair as well. But it's that moment of desperation where you just need to be heard. You need to be seen that you, you're willing to do whatever is necessary to get that. And have you personally felt that um, stereotype that when you go to the emergency department that you're drug seeking? Do you think that you've had that experience? Personally, I have not. It has never been overtly expressed to me. Um, I think I'm privileged, though, to be honest, because, you know, people meeting me, they would consider me an intellect. They would have meaningful conversations with me. And so their bias around drug seeking in patients would not necessarily match the way I present so I can see where that has not been my experience. So one of the ways that sickle cell patients can appear to be similar to drug-seeking behaviors uh, is just that frequent visit to the ER, which you've said, thank goodness with the medication you're on, that's decreased. Um, let's say you first came to the hospital and they, met, they gave you medication, you went home. How often is it that you have to come back again in a less than 24-hour uh, time frame? Mm. Yeah. Before the medication, it was quite common. I remember in the past, before being on hydroxyurea, I would have been discharged today and I'm back in the hospital this evening. I remember going back to the hospital three days later. I remember going back to the hospital a week later. Um, specifically in 2014, I, I I, I was really at death's door, I would say that, because mm. the frequency of hospitalization was so regular, so often that um, I I can see where people would be concerned about what's happening with this young man. Why is he here so regularly? So it, it before the medication, I'd definitely say that I've had experiences two days later, a week later, and when I was a really young child with less than 24 hours. Oh, wow. Mm. What's one thing that you would really like physicians mm -hmm. to know about the patient living with sickle cell? I want them to know that a pain that goes untreated will only make future efforts at managing pain much more difficult. And so if they continue to be guided by their biases about drug-seeking behavior and be guided by their ignorance or deficit in knowledge about sickle cell disease, they are contributing to the likelihood that persons with sickle cell disease will have future complications, future challenges managing their pain. And, and so I want them to show compassion. I want them to check their biases. I want them to do what is necessary to treat the patient with sickle cell disease because all of that which I'm asking for is consistent with the oath to do no harm. It's consistent with the code of ethics that guide the profession. So I, I really want them to check their biases. I really want them to know about sickle cell disease. I really want them to 
give the patient the treatment that they deserve. So if people are wanting to know more about sickle cell and living with sickle cell, is there a website? Is there is there webinars? Like where can they go to just get that information? We have a website here in Ontario, sicklecellanemia.ca, and we actually have a sickle cell summit that's coming up in November, November mm. 4 and 5. And this is targeted at improving equity in care being provided to patients with sickle cell disease. And so I'm just encouraging persons to check out our website, sicklecellanemia.ca, where they can find more information about the summit as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Lance Archer is a sickle cell patient and an advocate for sickle cell awareness in Ontario. He's currently located in Hamilton. We just finished listening to Dr. Brian and uh, Lance Archer talk about the state of sickle cell treatment in for in their experience in Ontario. Blair, what you work in emergency department. I'm not sure if you've seen uh, patients yeah. who have sickle cell in crisis. Can you tell me what your experience with this has been? Yeah, I, I certainly see less sickle cell in the community hospital where I locum now compared to as a resident at McMaster. Um and I got to say, I was listening to to Jennifer and then Lance going, oh, my goodness, I do not think I meet that 30-minute standard of care. I had a sickle cell crisis patient not too long ago. And, oh, if she were to rate me <laughs> as her MD that day, I don't know, uh, without any type of qualification or or rationale. I just, I was not attentive and I wasn't uh, reassessing her pain as frequently as I should have. And this sort of um, really bothers me. But at the same time, um, it's so helpful to hear from Lance. It's so helpful to have insights into his community of friends who have sickle cell disease about just how frequently we're failing that community and and failing to manage that disease properly. And knowing that there's this 30 minute guideline, um, like I'm definitely going to raise this with my own group to make sure that our triage teams and our physicians can try to maybe undo some of this uh, terrible delay that people are experiencing getting pain control. And, you know, the biggest thing I took away from Jen's comment is just ask them what works for them and give them that drug and, you know, they know their disease and, and they probably know how to get their pain under control faster and better than I do. So let's step back yeah. a bit, um, just because I think it's important to, it's kind of like our own mini uh, M&M mm-hmm. that we can yeah. have with you now, um, is what do you, if looking back, what do you think was, why do you think you were giving suboptimal care? Was it just you weren't aware that you're supposed to check frequently? Like if you can kind of like examine your, um, your sure. treatment of that patient, what do you think was done wrong? Or where did you think you were do- it went well, wrong? I just promised not to make excuses. And now I'm going to, <laughs> this will sound like a lot of excuses. So, you know, I saw this patient in a chair. I didn't see them in a bed. I saw them in a chair in a hallway. They did not look like they were in pain. Um, mm, okay. I, I probably saw about 35 to 40 people in eight hours, which is double what I was trained to see. Um, I feel immense pressure when there's 50 people in the waiting room to move volume. Um, we have a very high left without being seen rate at my hospital, people who just don't stick oh, around wow. to see a doctor. And that uh, really bothers me that people who thought they were having an emergency uh, couldn't 
um, bear the weight. Um, some of those people might not have been having emergencies and they self-select out, uh, but some of those people very well might have been having emergencies. And so it bothers me a lot that we're just not able to keep up with demand. And a lot of these patients um, uh, who are having pain, not just sickle cell pain, but a lot of our emergency department patients with pain get assessed and then they get sent back out to the waiting room to wait for test results because we have no beds, we have no place to put them. And so once you're in the waiting room, you don't get reassessed. There is no nurse assigned to say, how's your pain? How's your nausea? How are you feeling now? It's um, it's shocking when you kind of verbalize it out loud. It's uh, It's not the way an emergency department was meant to run. So I think just so I as I, I as I'm not an emergency doctor, so I can I can have the professorial role of being like the chair of the M M&M and M to say that you know part of this is it's a system issue, right? Uh, in the sense of just the function of the the state of our emergency departments across Canada, and then the other part of it is that the sickle cell patient was lumped in as another patient having pain, not realizing that sickle cell is crisis is very different mm-hmm. than someone having Cro- chronic pain or yeah or their renal colic yeah, yeah or exactly bil- or, yeah or renal yeah. colic right and so part of that is like a part of that could be improved from a systems point of view in the sense of what like dr brian said about having a protocol for a patient who's coming in with sickle cell but that once I'm just going to push back on that, Jola, because there's something unique about the emergency department where emergency departments in this country have been thrown under the bus because you would never allow your post-op coli, your lap coli post-op to go to like a waiting room and not be monitored by a nurse because the PACU is busy. Like you would never, like they have to go to the PACU and they have to have one-to-one or one-to-two nursing in the PACU. Like there are places that we don't compromise on care. And post-operative care in a PACU is one of them. But for some reason in the emergency department, it's okay for me to sell to send people with chest pain back out to the waiting room while we await their trope. It's okay for me to send a sickle cell patient or a suicidal patient back out to the waiting room while we await a medical workup. It's um, There's something unique about the emergency department, I think, and I'm biased here because I'm an ER doc, but we've allowed the emergency department to be thrown under the bus and we've lowered the standard of care there in ways that we never do in other parts of the hospital. Well, I would say that, you know, I I understand what you're saying. In this particular situation, dealing with the patient with sickle cell, I also don't think someone with chest pain should be in the waiting room, but dealing with patients with sickle cell, we know that having crises increases the likelihood, shortens their mortality. Currently, their mortality is about 42 to 47 years is their life expectancy, right? And the more crises of vaso-occlusive that they have, the more mm-hmm, organ mm-hmm. damage they can have further totally. on. Like they get avascular necrosis of their hip yep. and, you know, all of these other complications. So in a way, almost as like as the Trojan horse mm-hmm. to improve emergency departments when we're talking about pain is that similar to what is being done at UHN Mm -hmm. because of champions like Dr. Brian is that if you're a sickle cell patient, you're identified at the door at triage that this patient has sickle cell. They get pain medication within 30 minutes. They're in the room. Comforts are given. They're reassessed. Yeah. That should be the standard for every patient. Well, but I will advocate for the least, uh, the one, a group that's the most vulnerable mm -hmm. in our population, which is when you're racialized, you have a lot of biases when you're coming in already. Totally. And so I'm going to advocate, advocate for that group right and like we're talking about a small group when you look at it about the data for at least in the u.s is about two percent of kids are born with sickle cell um, anemia 
Um, but we're talking about not like a necessarily a large group of patients that we have to standardize the care for. If we start that with sickle cell, maybe there's other patients that we have to identify standardizing the care that it's not just emerges viewed as the dumping ground or a factory to pump patients in and out, but that we're actually taking care of the patients. But the emergency department game is small populations, right? We see many, many, many small populations because uh, we're sort of a generalist service. We see everything that walks through the door. And I don't know that I can prioritize a sickle cell patient having a crisis over another ridiculous case that I pulled in from the waiting room recently, which is an elderly racialized man who was a bit confused. I called him back in from the waiting room after his head CT showed a subdural with shift. He was sitting in a wheelchair in the waiting room with a subdural bleed and he came in altered. Like in what other world would that man not have been given a bed and nurse monitoring while we worked him up for bleed? Um, You know, it's just, it's gotten to the state now where this is tolerated and it seems acceptable to hospitals that the emergency room is just not providing adequate care to any of our small populations. And so I don't know how you rank those and say, well, we're going to pull in that CTAS2 patient right away because they have sickle cell disease, but we're not going to pull in an altered man uh, who's confused, or we're not going to pull in a woman who's eight weeks pregnant with left lower quadrant pain suddenly. You know, she's going to wait in the waiting room until her ultrasound comes back. Uh, it just, there's so many populations that need care that just aren't getting them these days in Canada's emergency departments. I, I don't know how to fix that immediately. But I, I'm going to take your comment in in the spirit it was intended that how about we start small? How about we have one win? And maybe sickle cell is that win. Blair, this has been a very spirited Eminem discussion. Sorry, I got a little heated there. <laughs> but no, a little spice is good. Uh, I it's the reality of the job that we do and this reality of the job that you do right and so there is the theoretical when we have things in papers and then there's how do we actually implement what we're, what is supposed to be standard of care so i think it's really important to have that conversation and being short-staffed and overwhelmed is not unique to an emergency department everyone in healthcare right now is working their butts off and we all just have to raise the bar and and just get people the care that they need despite that burnout and fatigue that we're all experiencing And so with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode of the CMAJ podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'd really appreciate it if you could share, like, or spread the word on social media or wherever you download your audio from. Or just let my family know they should listen because they don't listen. (laughs) I'm sure my chief is listening right now. Anyways, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mujala Malay. Until next time, be well.